0: Right, good afternoon, everybody. Uh, You'll have noticed from your program that this is supposed to be a joint paper. It's been researched and written jointly, but I'll be delivering it this afternoon. And I should also explain that there'll be two halves to the paper. The first half is on the origins and structure of the manuscript, and then the second half will be on its later history. Now, acquiring and owning a book, especially a very large manuscript book, in the later medieval world was never a casual act. First, it required an intellectual infrastructure to marshal the contents of the volume and to arrange them in a comprehensible and useful way. Texts were generally selected and juxtaposed with care to carry significance. Secondly, it required financial investment in the materiality of the volume, and in support for those who would carry out the laborious work finally it required investment of cultural capital and belief in the significance of book production and a confidence that the making of such a book would achieve its desired social ends for both patron and scribe books then were more than mere collections of vellum with text They were not just useful compilations or miscellanies, but had meaning for contemporaries who wove stories around them to give them particular significance. As such, they carried at least the promise that the owners of certain books and texts would be well regarded in their communities and beyond. Manuscripts were never independent of their context. They were never simply conveyors of text the physical and the intellectual functions of books were inextricably interwoven. As the context in which any given manuscript uh, existed changed over time, so did the cultural meaning of the volume, a fact that only added to its allure as time went on. For these reasons, the large codices that emerged from late medieval Connacht such as the Book of Ivoina, the Book of Ballymote, or the Book of Lekin present something of a paradox. Investment in large books like these was not necessarily the best way to impress in an oral society. And the West of Ireland origin of these books then raises questions about their financing and the motivations of their patrons. Those those who have studied the Book of Ivoina in the past have been aware of these issues. Perhaps the first to engage seriously with this manuscript was Edward O'Reilly in 1820. O'Reilly recognised that the volume he looked at was problematic and he tried to explain it. He noted, It may very properly be called the Laura Hivana or the Book of the O'Kellys as it contains sufficient proofs to show that for them it was compiled. Then he provides a synopsis of the contents and goes on to conclude Quote, from the above short account, it will be seen that this book contains the chief part of the matter found in the books of Ballymote and Lecklin, in addition to which there are several other valuable pieces. In O'Reilly's own mind, he had solved the enigma of the Book of Evina. For him, it was simply a large vellum codex typical of the late 14th century. By alluding to the volume as the Book of the O'Kellys, O'Reilly identified it as a family book similar to MacGurveshig's Book of Lekin. However, O'Reilly's solution was less than satisfactory. The volume does not seem to have originated with the political elite of the O'Kelly family of Ivana, and the earlier name for the codex, the Book of Dulgon, does not resolve matters. It is true that there are various similarities of content between uh, Ivana and the books of Ballymote and Lekin, but there are significant differences. The Book of Evina is more miscellaneous, lacking, for example, the internal structure that is quite obvious in the Book of Ballymote. We cannot be definitive on this point, however, because almost half the Book of Ivana is now missing, and the current ordering of the manuscript as now bound is not original. The volume seems originally to have contained some 368 leaves, By the early 17th century, when it was foliated first, that number had shrunk to 217. By 1736, that was down to 168, and finally, now 164 folios, of which four are in London. There are two early 17th century lists summarizing the contents of the manuscript one in Latin, in the hand of John Colgan, the Franciscan hagiographer which seems to be an expanded translation of an Irish list from the papers of Sir James Ware. And these help to recover the subject matter of some lost sections. But these lists are themselves very selective and omit to mention many texts still to be found in the manuscript. So any assessment of the codex now would do well to begin instead with the manuscript itself as it now exists. And in 1989, an a, a extremely important essay was published by William O'Sullivan, who gave a thorough analytical description of the scripts and structure of the Book of Revona, published in Asia. And his findings now form the basis for any examination of its origins and early history. As you've already heard, O'Sullivan identifies 10 scribes in the manuscript with further hands, including some from other learned families making later editions. The surviving manuscript was composed of 25 remarkably regular quaternions or gathers. That's four sheets folded in two to make eight leaves of a manuscript. By combining O'Sullivan's paleographical analysis with the evidence of the structure and the points at which particular texts start and finish in the gathers, It's possible to identify eight large blocks or sections within the current manuscript that were brought together to produce the book that now survives. The first text of each block begins at the top of a recto and often ends on a folio at the end of a quaternion where there's a large blank space left by the scribes. These various blocks usually have a thematic coherence giving the impression they were conceived as individual units. There are three main types of these blocks. The first one, again, has already been mentioned, corresponds to folios 48 to 55, and I'm using the modern pencil foliation, and it's the foliation used on the ISOS website. Uh, Folios 48 to 55 are gathered 10 in O'Sullivan's description of the physical makeup of the manuscript. This block is by a single scribe, Phelon Machagawan and Scheel and a colophon on folio 55 verso identifies the scribe and records that he wrote the gather for his friend and companion Murchadh then Bishop of Clonfert, and urges him not to give it away. This reference to the bishop. Uh, dates this part of the manuscript to some time between 1378 and 1393, that is, while Arthur O'Callagh was Bishop of Clonfert before his elevation to the Archdiocese of Chum. It also suggests that it was probably written somewhere near Clonfert, within the Gaelic scribal milieu. The southern part of the Diocese of Clonfert, including the O'Madden Lordship, remained under Gaelic control and this abutted onto the Ormond Lordship, where the learned family of Macha were hereditary historians to the O'Kennedys. The vellum gather created by Fuela and Machagown was appropriate for a bishop, since it can, contains predominantly religious material. It includes pedigrees of Christ, Mary, and other biblical characters, pedigrees of the saints of Ireland, a tract on the places associated with Irish saints, two litanies of irish bishops and a catalogue of the mothers of the saints of ireland there's also some secular material in this block including synchronisms of the kings of ireland with rulers of greece and rome and a tract on the mothers of historical personages however there's little of local interest apart from one poem and one short tale on brendan of clonfert now this gatherer as i've indicated was a personal gift to the bishop, and it is the most heavily decorated part of the manuscript. The second group comprises three blocks in mixed scribal hands. The first of these, folios 76 to 83, or gather 15. The second comprises folios 84 to 114, or gather 16 to 19 and the third is folios 11 to 38, or gathers 3 to 8, as categorised by O'Sullivan. Gather 15 contains Lar Nigarth, gathers 16 to 19 contain the Din Hanachis, and gathers 3 to 8 contain numerous genealogical tracts and pedigrees. There's also some monster material and a version of the Lar Branna. Only one segment of this entire group is clearly datable. On folio 111 verso, there's a scribal note, contemporary with the main text, confirming for us, quote, that this day, Murcherthoch, son of Philip, has been elected by the clergy of Connacht as archbishop in Chum da The date of his election as archbishop, we know from external sources, was the summer of 1392. Indeed, the inclusion of a story of St. Brendan on Folio 114 here suggests that Murcherthoch was probably still Bishop of Clonfert when that section was written. The scribes are not identifiable, but it could hardly have been written or assembled without the involvement of a professional learned family, not least a source of the text that it contains. In the case of the Ocalic Lordship, that was the Oduogon family, as you have heard, and this section includes a poem by Sean O'Duoghain. However, it's difficult to see this block as the product of a formal school, since the workmanship is quite poor. Miles Dillon judged the text of Lauren Garth to be carelessly written. Uh, Edward Gwynne d- described the scribe of the Din Hanechus as abominably careless and vernon hull commented in in his edition of the tale of the death of three sons of jermith mccarroll that the scribe did not appear to understand what he was copying the final group then group three comprises four blocks of material mainly in the hand of adam cushing about whom you've already heard and he cushing signs some of his work these um, these blocks comprise folios 39 to 47, which is gather 9, folios 1 to 10, which are gathers 1 to 2, folios 56 to 75, which are gathers 11 to 15, and, and then from folio 115 to the end, gathers 20 to 25. There's some thematic cohesion here. Folios 56 to 75, for instance, are largely religious in content, including material on St. Jarlath, patron saint of Trum and St. Benin or Benignus, a follower of Patrick, whose cult flourished at Kilbanan near Tum. Such material was clearly appropriate for a newly appointed archbishop. There's also a good deal of devotional and religious poetry in this block, since it now follows from the earliest section that by Freelon Macha Gown, which is also largely religious, there's some thematic continuity here, but that sequencing may not be original. The remainder of this block is less obviously structured. Um, there's a copy of the Bon Hanukkahs on folios 39 to 47. There are historical or prehistoric genealogies, pedigrees of the Fir Bullock, the Tuadidanon, the Milesian kings, and a selection of historical poems now at the beginning of the manuscript, folios 1 to 10. While the final part after folio 115 contains further religious poems and a series of tracts common in, in medieval learned compilations, such as *Sonus Cormac, Koranman, Chagascar Cormac and the Trials of Ireland. There are also texts of particular interest to the bardic schools, on Irish prosody and an Irish learning, and then these are followed by a selection of heroic and other poems. Now, in addition to copying material himself, and as you heard, he works on 99 of the surviving folios, Adam Cushing corrected the work found in other sections of the manuscript, and in some cases he inserted new material in blank columns of the text. For instance, in the Din Haneches text, he added a verse on Tuam, uh, recording the legend of St. Jarlet, which he obviously deemed necessary to tailor the place lore to the world of the new archbishop. Cushing's genealogy of the archbishop in Gather II can be dated it notes quote who was bishop of Clonfert, was elected unanimously to the archbishopric of tuam and he went to rome and graciously received it from pope boniface and he brought it safely to tuam and at the time of writing he is archbishop now as we've said was elected in the summer of 1392 and seems to have gone to rome in the second half of that year the islands of saints Island record under the year 1392 that, quote, he went over to apply for the Archbishopric of Chewam, and then he was formally translated to Chewam in January 1393. The dating implies that Gather Two of the manuscript was written after January 1393 or later. A second inference is that Adam Cushing's work on the manuscript might have been carried out in or near Tuam rather than Clonfert. Now, Adam was a rather different scribe from Thuelan Machagáin. O'Sullivan has described Adam's hand as, quote, lacking in elegance with very mediocre initials. This is a typical sample of his work. uh, Sometimes, I'll give you a detail, sometimes lifted straight out of the Latin manuscripts of the day, complete with flourished, Penwork. Now that's important, that, the, that they're not the typical Celtic um, initials that you might expect in a manuscript of this sort. Now Adam Cushing certainly knew Latin and he wrote marginal notes in Latin on the manuscript. And there would certainly have been ample opportunities in the Anglo-Norman cathedral town of Tuam to encounter Latin manuscripts in an ecclesiastical context. So the real possibility needs to be considered here that Adam Cushing may have been a member of the Archbishop's household, involved at some level in the ecclesiastical administration of the Archdiocese of Chum and working on the manuscript under the Archbishop's direction. However, the work could hardly have been compiled without the active involvement of Oduvagon scholars as it contains much material of Oduvagon provenance. The tract Noso Umoina on the Rites of the Ocalig on Folio 9 was probably composed by Sean Morrow Dugon in the mid-14th century, and this section of the manuscript also contained some poems by him. Again, the version of the Bon Haneches used is close to that in National Library Manuscript G3, uh, which was copied from an exemplar Belonging to or originally written by Sean Moore O'Dooghoghuyn. It seems clear that the character of what's now a single codex changed over time. Its origin then lay in a single gift from Fuelon Machaghuyn to the Bishop of Clonfert sometime after 1378, perhaps with the intention of contributing to an ecclesiastical library. And then in the early 1390s, new material was added to the bishop's library that was deemed culturally or socially useful, such as genealogical material or place lore and some historical material. Finally, at some point after 1393, further material was commissioned, possibly by the archbishop himself, that was of a varied character. It was assembled by Adam Cushing, who transcribed most of it. These elements in the Bishop's Library were then at some point arranged into a large codex by Cushing, who determined the sequence of texts and wrote catchwords at the bottom of each page accordingly. Identifying a motivation for the final assembling of the volume is challenging. One plausible scenario is it may have been put together in late 1393, as a collection of the sort of texts that a high-status churchman um, who now had to worry about his standing as archbishop um, could use to help authenticate his place in the social hierarchy of Connacht. Uh, That was his cathedral. That's the medieval part of Chewam Cathedral, and that's the interior of the uh, medieval part of Chewam Cathedral. Um, um, Our patron Murcherthoch is also buried there. There's another attractive possibility that might have triggered the making of this volume, and it has been mentioned at question time. Uh, In October 1394, King Richard II arrived in Ireland to deal with the government of his Irish lordship. In December 1394, Parliament met in Dublin, and Archbishop Murcherthoch of almost certainly attended. According to a letter written by him to the king on the 11th of March, 1395, the bishop had spent Christmas with the king in Dublin. Mercerthog had not travelled alone in November, 1394. He brought with him a retinue, and among that group was most probably Comcluna Odogon, or maybe he was Manus, I'm not sure, a professional historian of the Icalic the Annals record that Con Cluina was put to death in captivity in Dublin in 1394. If Oudogon was indeed part of the household of the Archbishop, it was presumably intended that he would offer either historical or politically relevant material that the Archbishop could use in any discussions with the king. In that context, it's entirely possible that the Book of Ivana may have been prepared for the use of the Archbishop on his Dublin mission, either as a reference work or as an indication of his status. If that were so, the book probably took on an added significance in the months after Christmas 1394, since Murchar Thucco was duly dispatched back to Connacht as propagandist for the king to negotiate surrenders of the leading Connacht lords to royal authority. Many of the greater Irish lords were sympathetic to this uh, royal initiative and uh, were keen to use the opportunity of having royal authority on their side in local political disputes. The head of the Ocalid lordship certainly saw things this way and he submitted to the king having been persuaded by the bishop. The ability to persuade rested on the status of the archbishop and an impressive volume such as other lords possessed might well have served as a prop in negotiations. This political context may help explain some of the manuscript's content. And the Middle Irish poem, which discusses the relationship of the foreigners of Dublin with St. Patrick, could have particular significance in justifying the extension of Dublin control over the Gaelic lordships. Again, the text on the teachings of Cormac with its advice to the ru- on the rule of a king, had obvious relevance in this context. So, such literary texts could be invoked to un- underpin the archbishop's position in relation to both the king and to the local Gaelic lords. Now, the archbishop's position was precarious. In the 1380s, for instance, he had supported the Avignon anti pope, and in 1389, the king's displeasure was made clear on this point. And the Archbishop again overstepped the mark in 1398 when he claimed to have power from Rome to dispense from marriages. Uh, he was rebuked it being pointed out that over this power there is a doubt. Uh, the Provost of Tewham, the Anglo-Norman William Rani, complained to Rome about the lax way the Archdiocese was being run, and Rome duly admonished Morichartacho uh, Caelic. The archbishop reported to the king in 1395 that his lands and churches in Tewham were being attacked and burned, and he was unable to resist the people responsible. In such a context, uh, the cultural power of a volume like the Book of Evoyna could have been considerable in convincing his opponents of the archbishop's status and authority within his own diocese. So, we shall move on now to the later history of the manuscript. Merchothook O'Calley, the patron, died in September 1407. He was succeeded as archbishop by an English Dominican who probably had little interest in any Irish manuscript left behind by his predecessor in Chum. It seems likely that the manuscript left Chum and travelled to Clonfert, where Merchothook's son Thomas was bishop. The Moser colleague, as you heard previously, was later appointed to Tune, but never seems to have uh, taken up the, the position. The manuscript probably remained some time in the Clonfert area. Folio 6, for example, has an obituary of Matthew McGrath, bishop of Clonfert, dated 1507. Uh, McGrath was responsible for the rebuilding of the Augustinian house at Clontuskert in 1471, and given the later associations of the manuscript with the Clontuskert area, which I'll come to in a minute, it's not improbable that it may already have been somewhere in that area at this early stage. By the beginning of the 17th century, the fate of the manuscript begins to emerge from darkness into a thin mist. Both Archbishop James Usher and Sir James Ware knew of the manuscript, but neither of them seems to have handled it. About 1619, James Usher made a list of Irish manuscripts known to him. He was interested in the Book of Ivoina since he already owned the books of lecan and Ballymote, and he noted uh, about the Book of Ivoina, it is o- O'Dugan's book with Thomas Kelly, Lord Clanrickard's Man indicating that the manuscript was in east galway now the map i have up there a few you, is, is you'll re- you'll all recognize it but it's it's focused on the diocese of clonfert and just to point out quickly a few places Chulm is up here where our patron was clonfert is over here pointer isn't great uh clontuskert is there sorry there somewhere and um, I'll be coming to Kinnalehen later, which is down at the bottom there in the south of the, the diocese. Um, so we have Thomas Kelly, Lord Clanrickard's man. Right, Thomas Kelly was one of the Earl of Clanrickard's major tenants on the dissolved monastic property of Clan Tuskert, granted to an earlier Earl of Clanrickard in 1562. A letter from Richard Burke, 4th Earl of Clannricard, to his land agent Henry Lynch, circa 1618, discusses the approach to be taken towards one Thomas Kelly. The Earl is critical, uh, describing Kelly as sickly and sinful, and he outlines a strategy to recoup losses from him. However, Thomas Kelly seems to have been quite a substantial figure in his own right. A 1617 inquisition of lands in County Galway shows that he had extensive land in the Clontuskert area. He received further grants of land in Clontuskert in 1619, making him quite a significant property owner in the area. His relationship to the Earl of Clanrickard may have been close. In 1617, as part of a settlement of his property, the Earl vested some of his lands in a number of local men. And one of his representatives on that occasion was Thomas Kelly, suggesting a close connection. The manuscript remained with the Kelly family for some time. At two points in the Book of Evina, uh, a man named Walter Kelly adds his name as part of a marginal note in what is clearly a 17th century hand. This Walter Kelly is almost certainly to be identified as Walter, son of Thomas, son of Conor Kelly, who held land in Killilochton Parish, in County Galway, and was our Thomas Kelly's son. They both anglicised their names, dropping the O from the Kelly, and Walter Kelly wrote in the Book of Ivoinam in a combination of Latin and English. Walter Kelly, too, was closely associated with the Earl of Clanricord, serving as his steward in 1613, and he was on money lending terms with the Earl's principal agent, Henry Lynch to whom he was also related by marriage. Walter Kelly is also mentioned at the Earl of Clanricard's estate correspondence in relation to the former monastic lands at Clan Tuskert, which was predominantly in Clanricard's hands, and the Earl regarded Walter as no longer a suitable tenant by 1621 and was pursuing a legal case against him at King's Bench. However, according to the Books of Survey and Distribution, in the sixteen forties, Walter Kelly remained a significant landowner in Clontuskert parish. It seems highly probable that these men, Walter and Thomas Kelly, were the people of that name who had the Book of Ivina in their possession. They were among the principal tenants of the Earl of Clanrickard on his estates in East Galway, and James Usher made explicit connection in the case of the Earl Stuart Thomas Kelly in sixteen nineteen. Their exact connection with the main line of the O'Kellys and the O'Kelly lordship, as documented in genealogies in the Book of Ivoina, is uncertain, but an expanded genealogy in the manuscript at folio 8 verso suggests that Thomas and Walter Kelly were not closely connected to the main medieval lordly family. For Walter and Thomas Kelly in the 17th century, their social ascent was recent, probably on the back of ascendant clan record power. The possession of such a manuscript for these men, associated with a family that bore their name, could help create a cultural argument for what they could claim, uh, and few could contradict them at the time, was their family uh, with a suitable uh, noble lineage. Now, whether or not these Kellys in the early 17th century used the manuscript to bolster their, their social status is unknown, but there was certainly a connection between the manuscript and the Earl of Clanrickard in the early 17th century. Annotations in this manuscript, in fact, suggest that that link may go back some time. There is one mention of a MacWilliam of Clanrickard, a Richard Burke. And possibly the date 1531, that's how Kathleen Mulcrone read the date. We're not absolutely certain of the date. Um, But that would bring it back to the early 16th century. A later annotation in English uh, alluding to a clan record is in an 18th century hand. So there's quite an extended uh, time range there. In the late 17th century, Roderick O'Flaherty, of as you heard, recorded that he gained access to a vellum book about Duogon, and he claimed it had long been in the custody of the earls of Clanricarde. Now, if O'Flaherty is correct, then the manuscript may have been kept at various times in the principal residences of the Burke's of Clanricarde, at Lochray in the 16th century, at Portumna in the 17th century, which is south of Clanfort or perhaps in their 17th-century townhouse uh, on the outskirts of Galway City at Tyrellin, particularly if it was being made available to scholars in that city, as you heard about earlier, as well as to Roderick O'Flaherty himself. Then, by the early 18th century, the manuscript had passed back into the hands of the Kelly family, although to a different branch. The family of uh, the Clontuskert branch, Thomas and Walter Kelly, had lost their lands at the Restoration but by 1737, the manuscript was in the hands of another Kelly, Eamon O'Callagh, signed his name in Irish in folio 44 recto with the date 21st of February 1736 or 7, and elsewhere the same man added a note in English on the probable date of compilation. Interestingly, the Book of Evoyna was not the only manuscript in Eamon O'Callagh's collection. He also owned a 1646 copy of Geoffrey Keating's Forest Fasa or Erin, a copy that we have here in the Academy now, and he owned a copy of A Life of St Malachy. And most significantly, he owned another major medieval vellum manuscript of East Galway provenance, uh, now known as the Lower Brach. Through the 17th century, the Lower Brach had been in the Franciscan friary at Kinelehen, and we have a date for that right down to 1699 of it being in the friary. But it was acquired by this antiquarian collector, Eamon O'Callagh of Tunnelig, before 1732. Then, in 1754, Lachlan Kelly inherited the Book of Evina from his father, Eamon, and entered a note of ownership in English, in empty space at Folio 69 Verso. Now you may not be able to see the ink is quite faded on his inscription, but it reads: This book belongs to Mr. Lachlan Kelly of Tunnelig, left him by his father, Mr. Edmund Kelly, deceased, 1754. The inscriptions in English, in a copper plate hand. One hint that while the manuscript was again in O'Kelly ownership its 18th century owner may have had problems in relating to its Irish language content. The Tunnelig branch of the family clearly prospered in the 18th century, despite their obscure origins. In 1783, Lachlan Kelly built a substantial three-bay, two-storey house, Woodmount House at Tunnelig, north of Ballinasloe, It's just over the river Suck into South Roscommon. Uh, It had 465 acres attached. The basis of this modest prosperity is unclear, but their newfound status clearly drew them into the ranks of antiquarian collectors of manuscripts, and they may also have seen their manuscript collection, and in particular the Book of Ivana, as conveying historical sanction for their recently acquired social position in the world. So if you want to know where the manuscript was in the 18th, late 18th century, it was in that house. In the later 18th century, the great Connacht manuscript collector, Charles O'Connor of Balnagar had access to the manuscript. He noted ex- uh, uh, extracts from it in two notebooks at intervals between 1765 and 1785. His references make clear that it was still known as the Book of Odoo down to the 1780s. Charles O'Connor probably never owned the manuscript, but he may have been on visiting or book borrowing terms with Lachlan O'Kelly of Tonalig. Now it's not known then how the manuscript left uh, East Galway and came into the possession of Sir William Beetham, uh, but it was certainly in his library in the 1810s. Beetham was a knowledgeable an industrious archivist, and an avid, sometimes unscrupulous collector. It was through Beetham that another um, enthusiastic collector, Edward O'Reilly, got access to our manuscript, and it was he who first referred to it as La Rheumonia, which is also what got imprinted on the spine and more generally he referred to it as the large vellum manuscript of Sir William Beetham, making it clear that Beetham was then the owner before 1820. William O'Sullivan has suggested that the adoption of a new name, Larry Vanya, by O'Reilly and by Beetham could have been to disguise the fact that Beetham's title to the manuscript was not secure. The manuscript was probably in poor condition when Beetham acquired it, But a green velvet binding probably dates from the 1810s after Beetham acquired it and before he sold it on. In 1823 he sold it to the Duke of Buckingham for £150. Edward O'Reilly's published description may have been what enticed the Duke to buy it. The intermediary in the sale was a man called Sheffield Grace, who pointed out to Beetham that, quote, so very valuable a volume is not every day marketable, and that he might not find a higher bidder. Mr. Grace continued, quote, it is, I am aware, an interesting possession for you as a curiosity, though wholly unproductive of any useful information, unquote. And he went on to add disingenuously, I should regret to influence you on the present occasion. So the manuscript went to the Duke's Library at Stowe in Buckinghamshire, and in July 1839, the Royal Irish Academy made contact with Sir Thomas Phillips, uh, who I think they hoped would be an intermediary, requesting a loan of the Book of Evonium so that a copy could be made. They sent a second letter in November, uh, but the reply was negative and the matter was dropped. The Duke of Buckingham spent a fortune assembling an unrivalled private library at Stowe in Buckinghamshire. But his lavish lifestyle resulted in bankruptcy, and in 1849, the manuscript collection was sold, realising £8,000. Thomas Phillips was an underbidder for the Irish manuscripts, but they were bought by Bertram Ashburnham, 4th Earl of Ashburnham, who by the time of his death in 1878 had amassed over 4,000 manuscripts, not just Irish material, but uh, English, French, and Western European collections generally, of which the Irish manuscripts from the Stowe collection were just one modest element. Through the investments of these wealthy English collectors, the Book of Vivania became one of a large collection of Irish manuscripts that remained in England for 60 years from the 1820s to the 1880s. Their inaccessibility in England became a matter of controversy in elite cultural circles in the 19th century, and Eugène O'Curry in particular was scathing about Lord Ashburnham, asserting that the Book of Ivoina and other manuscripts were, quote, concealed with a churlish jealousy, greatly at variance with what might be supposed to be the intellectual cultivation of the owner and a spirit very hostile, indeed, to the general desire of the present age to facilitate efforts now being made throughout Europe to investigate all sources as can be deemed likely to throw light on the migrations of men and the march of civilization in times gone by." Unquote. Members of the Royal Irish Academy were very active lobbyists to get these manuscripts repatriated, and when they were eventually returned to Ireland in 1883, they were deposited in the Library of the Royal Irish Academy, where they still remain. So, to conclude, insofar as its fragmentary state will allow, um, the, uh, the history of the Book of Ivoina e. took a very complex course. It appears to have begun as a collection of booklets containing a range of texts written at different times. These were arranged and added to by Adam Cushing, possibly a member of archbishop of Chalig's ecclesiastical household they were assembled into a coherent codex by cushing an undertaking just possibly linked to the richard ii's campaign in ireland in 1394 or 5. it was probably uh, con- uh, executed in collaboration with Cam Cluna O'Dougan, whose presence in Dublin in 1394 is surely explained by his also being part of the Archbishop's retinue. After the death of the Archbishop, the volume probably passed back to the O'Dougan family, the learned historians of the Echali, and other learned families, including O'Higgins and Mac Aegon, had access to it thereafter. In the early 17th century, it came into the custody of the, o, of the O'Kellys of Clan Toskert, who were stewards to the Earls of Clan Rickert. Uh, that branch closely associated with Clan Record, and through the Earls, it was made available to various scholars through the 17th century, including MacFurbishing, John Lynch, and Roderick O'Flaherty. The book later passed to another branch of the Kelly family, uh, not linked to the previous owners, but like their predecessors, they probably valued the cultural status imposed uh, on the owner of such a manuscript. By the 19th century, that cultural sense of attachment seems to have become less significant and the manuscript passed out of the hands of the Kelly family into um, the hands of various antiquarian collectors who had no connection with it, whatever, and then ultimately into the library of the Royal Irish Academy. In this way, from its unusual, I would argue, origins in the 14th century. The later history of the manuscript is actually quite similar to that of most of the other great codexes that still survive in our libraries. Thank you.